This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEEDTECH, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEEDTECH. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Jill Morgan. I'm a nurse at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, and a subject matter expert with NEETEC. For those of you not yet familiar with NEETEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the U.S. with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NEETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. I am super excited today because... We're going back to the basics, viral hemorrhagic fevers and PPE, and I'm joined by my back to the basics co-host, Trish Tennell. Trish Tennell RN from H&H Bellevue. Hi, Jill. Hi. And Trish, I'm so glad you're back. Glad we're continuing this series we call Back to the Basics. Although I have to say, I'm not sure any of this was covered at all back when I was in nursing school. Oh, please. When we were in school, cars didn't have seatbelts, let alone airbags. (laughs) It's true. The world has gotten a lot smaller since Trish and I were small. It's easier than ever to be halfway around the world in less than a day. And that means some pathogens that we used to think of as exotic could be in our EDs or clinics anytime. Today, we're bringing you back to the basics to talk about four viral families that cause viral hemorrhagic fevers, concentrating on Ebola, Marburg, Lassa, and Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. Okay, wait, wait, wait. We have to get this right from the top. So as usual, we're just going to take one step back. What now? All he did was name, oh yeah, okay, those aren't the viral families. I get it. Yeah, we're going to talk about those diseases in a minute, and we'll talk about sort of how they got some of their names. But let's start with the viral families. Flaviviridae, Phyloviridae, Bunyaviridae, and Arenaviridae. None of those exactly roll off the tongue, and that's part of the problem. Yeah, you're right. For the phyloviridase, they're actually named because they're sort of filamentous viruses. And you might remember that image from back in the Ebola days. They would always show this image of sort of a long, twisty, wormy thing. So those phyloviridase, that family gives us the Ebola and Marburg viruses. The flaviviridase, derived from the Latin word flavus, or Latin for yellow, is the virus associated with yellow fever, which is known to cause jaundice in victims. And the arenaviridae apparently have a sandy appearance under a microscope, and arenos is Latin for sand, and that family gives us Lassa fever. That leaves us with the bunyaviridase, named not for the shape or the appearance, but for the geographic location they were identified, Bunyanwera, Uganda from where we get Crimean-Congo hemorrhagic fever. Yeah, and that habit of naming viruses and diseases for locations is one that isn't always very helpful. It doesn't tell us much about the disease or the virus, so at least since about 2015, the World Health Organization has tried to have new diseases named in ways that explain something or tell you something about it. We explained that when we talked about COVID-19, coronavirus disease 2019. And so that's great for new diseases, right? But we have all these old, if you will, important viral hemorrhagic fevers that have been named for all sorts of things. Lots of them about where they've been found. But where they've been 
found isn't always where they're usually found. All right, so let's get on to the actual diseases. We want to talk about four specifically because there have been some recent outbreaks and these can be some pretty serious and dangerous diseases. Right now, there's an outbreak of Marburg in Ghana, a place that has not had it before. There are also lots of cases of Lhasa in Nigeria, like over 850 confirmed cases. We're going to talk about Marburg, Lhasa fever, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, and just a little bit about our old friend Ebola or Ebola virus disease. So for those of you not aware, Trish and I were both part of the response teams at our facilities that took care of Ebola patients back in 2014-2015. Our claim to fame. What those four diseases and actually all four families have in common is that they're all RNA lipid-enveloped viruses that are zoonotic. They have animal or insect hosts. For Marburg, we know the host is a specific fruit bat. For Ebola, we think it's probably a bat, but the evidence has been elusive. Loss of fever, rodents. Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, ticks. But we'll talk more about that later. If you remember back to one of our early podcasts, we talked about the fact that RNA viruses replicate themselves really quickly and without the assistance of a viral copy editor like DNA viruses have. That makes them prone to errors, like me writing something over and over on a chalkboard. And errors in viral transcription are called mutations, the things that help viruses change. Another thing we want to mention is about the lipid envelope. Thank goodness for lipid envelopes. <laughs> now, why would anybody be grateful for a little fatty coating around a virus? Well, Jill, do you remember that old Dawn dishwashing detergent ad where there was a sink full of gross, greasy dishes and they added one drop of Dawn? I think the line was, Dawn, takes grease out of your way. Oh, Lord, yes, you're right. That, that, that lipid envelope means the virus is able to be killed by things that remove grease, like detergents and drying agents. So while these pathogens cause some pretty serious illnesses that can be hard to treat, they're actually fairly easy to kill on surfaces. So far, we know that all viral hemorrhagic fevers come from four viral families, that they are all RNA and lipid enveloped. But what else do they have in common? Well, frankly, I think if you're going to call something a viral hemorrhagic fever, most of us would expect to see bleeding. Maybe not zombie movie level, blood from everywhere kind of bleeding, but something. It's not that these pathogens can't cause bleeding. They can cause problems in lots of body systems that could result in bleeding and organ failure. Bleeding isn't an early sign, and it probably isn't the symptom that's going to bring someone to your ED or urgent care. Nope. But that's another thing all these viruses have in common their presenting symptoms are likely to be nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, muscle joint pain, headache, the kind of symptoms EDs and clinics see all the time. Another important point is that not all viral hemorrhagic fevers that we know of can be transmitted person to person. For some, you actually have to get it from that host species, whether that's a tick or a mosquito or whatever. And speaking of mosquitoes, some of the diseases caused by those pests are super common and generally cause milder illness. I hate mosquitoes. Dengue, yellow fever. Did you know that over 100 million people get sick each year and over 60,000 die just from those two mosquito-borne illnesses? I hate mosquitoes, but I digress. So let's talk about one of these that is in the news a bit right now, Marburg. Again. Not a helpful name. 
This VHF is named from the German city it was discovered in. So discovered in Marburg, Germany, in Green Monkeys. And Marburg is really unpredictable. Like after that first outbreak for what it's named, it totally disappeared for almost another decade. But since 2000, cases have been identified pretty regularly, like nine known outbreaks in that, what, 20 plus years, usually in that sort of rich forested region of Central African continent, Uganda, Angola, Kenya, the DRC. And what do we know about these outbreaks? Most of them are tied to people walking right into the home of bats. Caves. Miners, spelunkers, and tourists. Oh my. Oh, sorry. Wrong podcast. <laughs> the host species for Marburg is the fruit bat. Those poor green monkeys who are sick with Marburg are not the natural hosts to Marburg. They seem to get it and get sick like human primates from fruit bats. This is the house where the primate got sick. This is the fruit all covered in spit that was served in the house where the primate got sick. That is like the worst nursery rhyme ever. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, clearly I don't have anything to worry about because I am not going anywhere near a cave or a mine or a bat if I can help it. And that's a great start, clearly. But if you're a healthcare worker, my next question to you is this. Do you consistently ask a travel history? I get it. Marburg is rare, but people travel a lot. There are people who are adventure travelers, researchers, missionaries, and aid workers. And now I'm thinking of all the places I've been. If I became sick upon returning to home, would someone have thought to ask me about where I had been and what I might have been doing or who I came in contact with? Yeah. Marburg and Ebola, we think, come from bats, and bats can then affect other things. Like Trish said, infected bat spit can be on fruit in infected areas. Other animals can be infected as well. Lhasa comes from rodents. And rats and mice can be really hard to control. And cleaning up after them can expose people to infectious materials and rodent droppings. And Lhasa actually is endemic in some areas, especially during certain seasons when those rats and mice are particularly hard to control. So asking follow-up questions about where people stayed, what their environment was like, what work they did, those things can be really important. And as I promised, for Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, we're talking ticks. Humans don't even have to get a tick bite. The ticks infect livestock, chickens, horses, pigs, even camels and rhinoceroses. Or is it rhinoceri? Asking about travel is the start of a good history but some risk factors may need more questions. Simply asking what you did when you were there and where did you stay may open up the door to this epidemiological mystery. And Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever is a bit of an outlier among our other viral hemorrhagic fevers because now that we can do serologic studies, we know that maybe 80% of the people who contract CCHF will be asymptomatic. But if you do get sick with it, Whoa, you might get very, very sick, just like you would with some of the other viral hemorrhagic fevers. Like we said a minute ago, the symptoms of all these viral hemorrhagic fevers start out very similar and pretty vague. Fever, chills, headache, muscle pains, nausea. And where have we heard that before? These symptoms are what fill every ED, urgent care, and primary care clinic every day. So how do you separate the everyday let's see, could be COVID, could be bad clams, presentation from something like Ebola or Marburg. You ask a travel history. So let's say I'm the triage nurse. 
Let's see here, Mr. Parker Joseph. I see you've had a fever and headache since yesterday. Have you traveled anywhere in the last month? Just because I live in Ohio doesn't mean I don't travel further than Pittsburgh. I just came back three days ago from hiking the Kakum National Park, where they had this phenomenal canopy walk through the rainforest. That just happens to be in Ghana, where the last couple of cases of Marburg have come from. Right. You won't know unless you ask. Start with symptom screening, a great place to start to make sure that you're protecting yourself from any kind of symptom you don't want. I don't care what is making you cough and hack. I don't want it. And no offense, but if your patient tells you they have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, don't assume they practice meticulous hand hygiene. Oh, just wash your hands. Enough said. Start with symptoms, then ask travel, and we get it. It's very hard to keep up with all the outbreaks in all of the countries. I totally admit to having to look up which continent some of these places are on. We are really grateful for the electronic medical record companies that are making this an easier task. And if your triage record, paper or electronic, doesn't include travel history, ask why and bug them till they incorporate it or turn it on. Yeah, these diseases are not going away. Get with the 20th century already. We could start an outbreak of the month club. Symptoms and travel, okay? That's the basics. It's really not that hard. Could I subscribe to the Outbreak of the Month Club and does it come with the transmission-based PPE app? <laughs> now we want to go back to the part about protecting yourself. If they have symptoms, think about your PPE. If they have symptoms plus travel, think about your PPE. Right. Like, what could this be? Isn't that sort of what emergency and primary care is all about? Figuring out what someone has usually involves thinking about all the things they could have. Lots of chest pain is reflux. Some of it's pneumonia, angina, some costochondritis, and some chest pain is a heart attack. It's important that your differential list is broad enough to cover the what-ifs and still be manageable. Also, think about the PPE differential, what you are doing and what you should be wearing. Right. We're not suggesting you put on a hazmat suit for every case of vomiting and diarrhea, although I will admit there have been days. Yeah, the last thing any of us want is explosive diarrhea from a patient who can't toilet themselves, whether it be because of age or ability. Wow, the memories. <laughs> Gross. All right, back to PPE. Marburg, like its sibling Ebola in the phylovirus family, and loss of fever, need what we call full-body coverage PPE. Now, for starting in triage or even in ED or urgent care, we want to follow precautions that are commensurate with the risk, right? Can I stand over here and take the rest of my history? Can the patient wear a mask? Can they walk by themselves? How sick are they? We know from the Ebola outbreak that patients can present at any stage of their illness. From, I don't feel very well, but I can totally walk and toilet myself just fine, thank you, to, holy cow, this patient is critically ill. Because these pathogens can enter us almost anywhere in very small amounts and still make us sick, we need greater protection than we might from our standard transmission-based PPE, especially when these patients are wet with fever, vomiting, or diarrhea. Yeah. So remember back at the start of COVID when people were like obsessively wiping down their groceries and their mail? They had this very real concern before we knew much about COVID. And that was that getting the virus or any kind of contamination from another person on their hands could make them sick. 
And that's not so far-fetched. There is a risk with lots of pathogens that what makes it to our hands will, within the next few minutes, make it to our eyes, nose, and mouth. We don't think about it. We're largely unaware of it, but we touch our faces a lot. Yep. Some pathogens, and specifically we'll talk about viruses, they need to meet up with or bump into, gain access to specific cell types in order to make us sick. Like Trish and I have mentioned before, we don't think, gosh, if I step on this cold virus, I'm going to get a cold. Or even if I touch something contaminated, I don't think I'm going to automatically get sick. I usually have time to wash my hands or use hand sanitizer as long as I'm not like helping this pathogen get into me by like shoving it into my eyes, nose, or mouth. I'll be okay if I can avoid that. But Marburgi Bull and Lassa don't obey the rules. Microscopic breaks in my skin, a paper cut, hangnail, razor burn, any of those could be an entry port. And pretty much all of the body fluids from patients who have these hemorrhagic fevers are infectious. Vomit and diarrhea, of course, plus saliva, sputum, blood, and urine. So you have to protect yourself from droplets and aerosols. So total body coverage means no skin showing. If you are the one caring for someone who is a PUI, a person under investigation, or a confirmed viral hemorrhagic fever patient. Yeah, no skin. So that means if you're using a gown, you want it to be like a level four gown. That tells you it's been tested for resistance to viral penetration. And same thing if you're going to use a coverall or bunny suit, whatever you want to call it, you want to look for that same designation. It's called the ASTM 1670-1671. Those are tests that make sure that those textiles don't let viruses through. Now that I've covered my body, I still need to cover my legs or my feet. So a level four gown or coverall, shoe or boot covers or leg covers. What else? Well, gloves should be obvious, but gloves, and if you have the opportunity, we really like long or what they call extended cuff gloves because that can help bridge the sometimes gap that appears between your sleeve and your glove or between your arm and hand. The tough part may just be the most complicated part, and that's from the neck up. What are your choices for protecting your eyes, nose, and mouth? What will give you respiratory protection? And what about your neck or hair? I think the choice of what kind of respirator you use really influences or determines the rest of your ensemble. And we understand that this is not the healthcare worker running to their supply room that gets to make that decision, right? This is a decision that's best made in advance with the healthcare workers who are going to be putting on these ensembles and the infection prevention or control people at your facility. It's complicated. The choice that's made on respirators influence not only what other PPE you need, but the order and method you use for donning and doffing. We have trained people where there was a disconnect between the theoretical and the practical side of this. Folks trying to follow a doffing protocol that was impossible. Remember, you can't take your shirt off without first removing your coat. I know, I've tried. <laughs> All right, so we're not going to go too much into the specifics about PBE ensembles here because clearly it's hard to do that without visuals. But for Marburg, loss of fever, and Ebola, you need a respirator. So that's an N95 or higher filtering face piece respirator or an elastomeric respirator or a powered air purifying respirator or PAPR and that full body coverage. You can do that with an impervious hood or a surgical head shroud added to your N95 and face shield. Your PAPR 
may have a built-in or disposable hood or shroud. But the important things are, can you wear it and can you take it off safely? Absolutely. If you try on your facility's PPE ensemble and can't move or overheat or can't see out because of fogging or too small an opening for your face, you are not going to be able to work in that outfit safely. If you can't take the pieces off safely or in an order that lets you maintain mucous membrane protection as you do it, that's also a problem. Find that out now before you need it. And really, y'all, that advice goes for anything we use to protect ourselves. You have to know how things work, where to find them, how to use them safely and effectively, including how to take them off safely before you need it. Like fire extinguishers, eyewash stations, and PPE. Okay, I want to do a quick review. If I'm working in a triage space and someone has fever, body aches, and GI symptoms, the next question I want to ask, probably as I'm taking three steps back from the desk or counter, is, have you traveled in the last month? There are lots of answers they could give to that question that may be helpful to me. Yeah, so if I say, for instance, yeah, we just came back from a cruise last night, then I'm thinking either foodborne GI or the dreaded neurovirus, and I don't want either one, thank you. If the answer is, we went home to see our family in West Africa and have been back a few days, more questions are needed, maybe by me, maybe by the next person to see the patient. But either way, I want to minimize exposure, alert the next caregiver, put this person directly into a room if at all possible, and protect myself while I'm doing that. And we are back to the basics of identify, isolate, and inform. Couldn't resist that one, Jill. I know, you just always like to get these things coming back around. So you don't have to start out in the equivalent of a hazmat suit. Until you know what's going on, consider your risk. What do you as a healthcare worker need to do? What contact will you need to have with the patient? What can the patient do for themselves? Or for patients who are febrile or delirious, what will that patient do? Some patients come in sick, some do not. If I have to help them, I need PPE. If I'm going to be close enough to be concerned about my eyes, nose, and mouth, I need to keep those covered. If I will be touching them and in contact with them, like if I need to help them get undressed, I need a gown and gloves and eye protection at a minimum. If someone is not ill-appearing and can walk, undress, and toilet themselves, great. I can direct them to a room with minimal contact, take the rest of their history from the door or on the phone. Yeah, and that brings up another important point about complex PPE ensembles. They take time. You can't be in a hurry. Everything is going to take longer than you think. So we encourage people to put that one person in full PPE into that room who can accomplish whatever needs to be done. And of course, to Trish and I, that would mean a nurse. Yep. Vital signs, IVs, specimen collection, meds, more history taken. We've got it covered. So make sure you're appropriately covered by putting on the correct PPE. Yep. So we're going to wrap up today with this. Zoonotic diseases, like the viral hemorrhagic fevers we've been talking about today, are threats healthcare workers everywhere need to know about. Whether you're in Ohio or New York, large facility or small, ask about their travel history, know what PPE you would use and how to use it, and practice. We need every healthcare worker to stay safe. Be careful out there. 
Gosh, I feel like we're signing off on the old Hill Street blues. Hey, it's not a bad message. You're right. Thank you, Trish, for joining us today to discuss viral hemorrhagic fevers and PPE. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really important topic and one that lies near and dear to my heart. I appreciate having the opportunity to take another journey back to the basics with you, Jill. What's next? Let's take a look at the very basic and talk about hand hygiene, the OG of PPE. Okay, so I'm old. I'm going to have to go look that up. I don't even know what that means, but okay. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to this episode on viral hemorrhagic fevers and PPE. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at And don't forget to visit us on the web at netech.org backslash podcast where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.